Well, good morning, Grace Gospel Church. As you can see, we're in Exodus chapter 5. Thank our brother Joey for reading those uh, verses from God's Word for us. You may recall that as we were planning to look at the life of Moses, we saw that he lived 120 years and his life was neatly divided into three 40-year segments. The first 40 years of his life began in Exodus chapter 2, and it covers the preparation of Moses for the ministry that the Lord would call Moses to. Then we saw the actual call of Moses, beginning in chapter 3 through verse 17 of chapter 4. We had three messages on the call of Moses. Now, beginning last week with the message our brother Gilson preached, we are going to see how Moses answers God's call. This is part two of Moses answering God's call. The rest of the messages will all deal with different aspects of Moses' life as he answers the call of God to serve God. We're going to have, Lord willing, up to 40 parts. We're going to cover much of Exodus, not all of it, nothing in Leviticus, parts of Numbers we will cover, and parts of Deuteronomy. We're primarily focusing on those passages in Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy that Moses is actually the key human figure in. Moses is saying something. Moses is doing something. But as we learned, character studies about biblical characters are primarily a story about God. It's how God worked in the life of that man or woman. What God did and how they responded to God's words to them, God's plan for them. If you like titles, the title of today's message is that God's word should be obeyed by all. And we'll see why that is the title in a minute. What is this passage really all about? You may recall that two weeks ago, as well as last week, our brother Gilson mentioned a key verse that governs everything going forward through the parting of the Red Sea and the destruction of Pharaoh and his armies, that they may believe. That was the whole purpose, that they, the people of Israel and the Egyptians, would believe that Yahweh, the Lord God, is a God who keeps all of his promises, his covenant promises that he made to Abraham and repeated to Isaac and Jacob. He had not forgotten them, even though the Jews found themselves, the Hebrews found themselves in slavery in Egypt, the Lord had not forgotten those covenant promises, and he wanted them all to believe that he was the one true God of heaven and earth. This particular passage is about obedience. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron came and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel. 
Let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who's the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. And besides, I will not let Israel go. That idea of that they may believe comes out even in Pharaoh's words. I do not know the Lord. I do not believe in the Lord. I do not trust in the Lord. Pharaoh considered himself an incarnate God on the earth. He was the ruler of what was the most powerful nation at that time. Everyone bowed down to him. He was treated as a God on the earth. He was not going to acknowledge any other God but himself. I do not know the Lord. I will not obey his voice. That's what this passage is about, and we'll see how the message develops that idea. God is revealed in this passage as the God who should be obeyed and worshiped, and we'll see how that is developed throughout the 23 verses that comprise Exodus chapter 5. If you can take only one thing away from today's message, let it be this. God should be obeyed and worshiped even when life is difficult for you. It's easy to obey God. It's easy to worship him and give thanksgiving and praise to him when everything is rosy, when the sun is shining in our life, when everything is as we feel as it should be, as I want it to be, as I want my life to go. It's a lot more difficult to obey and worship God when life is difficult. Many of you may know Christians who, professing Christians, who during a time of trial, they turn away from the Lord. They stop fellowshipping with the local church. Their own personal worship, time spent in the word, time spent in prayer, becomes less and less. Christ and God, instead of being the focal point of their life, the center of their daily life, he's pushed out to the periphery, to the perimeter when life gets difficult. I think probably every one of us here has either been there ourselves at some dark spiritual valley in our life, the dark night of the soul, of our soul, or we know someone who has. Maybe you even know someone now who really doesn't involve themselves in their professed Christian faith. Pray for them. Understand that it is difficult at times to obey and worship God when life is difficult. But that does not alleviate us. That does not release us from the obligation to obey him, even in the most difficult of circumstances, and worship him, celebrate him for who he is and what he has done. This passage breaks down neatly into three key parts. The first part in the first four verses, God expects obedience and worship from all. No one is excluded from that, saved or unsaved. Every single person who draws breath 
on this earth, who has ever drawn breath on this earth, who will draw breath on this earth, God expects obedience to his word and worship from them. God expects obedience and worship during the trials in life. And God expects obedience and worship even in the face of perceived injustice. And we'll see how that comes out. Because some of us perhaps have experienced injustice in our life. Others judging us incorrectly, assuming our motives are not good. They're not righteous judges. They don't know the heart. And sometimes we face perceived injustice. Whether that injustice is actual or whether we just perceive it is beside the point. God still, even when we feel we are not being treated properly, especially by those who are supposed to love us the most, a spouse, parents, children, our brothers and sisters in the Lord, God still expects us to obey his word and to worship him no matter what we face in this life. So let's see how it comes out that God expects obedience and worship from everyone, no exceptions. God's instructions are to be obeyed and he is to be celebrated by worship in this life. Beginning in verse 1, afterwards Moses and Aaron came and they said to Pharaoh, Moses and Aaron were believers. They believed the word of the Lord. They had no doubt regarding God's word. And they said to the unbeliever Pharaoh, thus says the Lord. They make a proclamation, not their own word, but God's word, the Lord's word. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. They point out the fact that he is not Pharaoh's God. He is the God of Israel. He is not the God of Egypt, a picture of the world. The world wants nothing to do with the one true God of heaven and earth, nothing to do with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord says, let my people go. When God says, let, that's an exhortation. Let us go out in the book of Hebrews. Let us lay aside every sin which so easily entangles us. Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. When the Holy Spirit speaking through the author of Hebrews says, let us lay aside. When God's Spirit says, let, it's not a suggestion. It's not something optional. Oh, I get to decide whether I want to lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles me. It's not optional. God's polite. When he gives instructions, when he gives an exhortation, they have the force of a command. They are to be obeyed. So when God said through Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh, let my people go, that was a command from the Lord God. And for what purpose was his word to let them go to be obeyed so that they, that they may celebrate a feast, so that they may worship God. A feast 
In ancient Israel involved sacrifice. It involved animals that would be slain as sacrifice. Some offered to the Lord, some eaten by the priests. Here, by all the people. In the New Testament, it's not a physical sacrifice of death. Paul makes it very, very clear that our life in Romans 12, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, reckon ourselves, consider ourselves to be spiritual sacrifices, our entire life to be a sacrifice, a living sacrifice, not a dead sacrifice. This is how we celebrate the Lord, by living a life that is in obedience to him, that worships him, not merely with our lips, but with our life. God doesn't just want lip service. The, the, the hymns that we sang this morning were beautiful. They were wonderful. The lyrics captured deep theology of Scripture. But it's not just our lips that should be uttering those praises. It is our life that should be uttering those praises. The world celebrates so many things, but they don't celebrate the Lord God. They don't celebrate Jesus Christ. That's your job and mine if we are believers in Christ. We are the only ones who are going to celebrate him in this world. The world is not. Even his birth coming up in what? Six, seven weeks or so. The remembrance of his birth. The world doesn't celebrate that. Even if they sing a Christmas carol, it's just with the lips. It doesn't come from the heart. Their primary focus is on gifts, not God's greatest gift, his beloved son, but on other gifts, material things that'll pass away. You and I are the only ones that will celebrate him on this earth. Let us do that. God is to be obeyed and celebrated in, by worship in this life. The best worship we can offer is a holy life. It is the unbeliever who does not know God and opposes obedience to his instructions. But Pharaoh, the unbelieving ruler, said, Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? It's the unbeliever who doesn't know God. It is the unbeliever who doesn't want the believer to obey the voice of the Lord. It is the unbeliever who doesn't want to obey the voice of the Lord, God's word, himself. Pharaoh, because he doesn't know God, will not obey the voice or the words of God. When you see someone who refuses to obey God's word, what they are testifying to is that they don't know the Lord God. They don't truly know who he is. Scripture presents God as a God of love. That's true. But that love was shown in sending his son, Jesus Christ, as the sin bearer to bear the sins of the world on the cross. 
to undergo the wrath and judgment of God and to shed his precious blood and die for the forgiveness of sins. That is the love of God. But God is also a judge. The scripture says, our God is a consuming fire. Have you ever seen fire consume anything? I think we all have. It leaves nothing but ash. A small fraction of what the fuel, whether it be a log or no matter what the fuel is, it leaves a small fraction left. Black. Just ash. Our God is a consuming fire. He's not just a God of love. The person who does not obey testifies that he does not know God because anyone who truly knows God in his or her heart of hearts knows that our God is a consuming fire. He is a God to be feared and obeyed as well as a God to be loved for what he did for us in Jesus Christ. It is the unbeliever who claims no knowledge of God and feels no need to obey him. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I show to obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. I do not know Yahweh, the God of Israel. And besides, I will not let Israel go. God's word for the most part, at least as far as the responsibility of man goes, both the unsaved and the saved. God's word is very clear. Even a 12-year-old of average intelligence understands the practical commands and instructions in God's word. It's not a matter of understanding that people reject Christ, that people reject obedience to God's word. It's a matter not of understanding, but of the will. I will not let Israel go. It's a rebellious act of the will on the part of Pharaoh here. But it is the believer who knows God. And as a result of knowing God, being in a personal relationship with him, being a child of God, adopted into God's family, as Paul writes in Romans. The believer who knows God, whose heart beats in unison with God's heart, that person, the result is a wish to obey God and to worship him. Then they, Moses and Aaron, said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Do you realize this, brothers and sisters? If you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, he has met with you. God has met with you at the cross. That's the meeting place of God and man. When you were first introduced to the Savior and his Father who loved you enough to send his Son 
to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. God has met with us. Oh, how we thank God that in his grace, in his eternal sovereign plan, he has met with us. What a time of rejoicing. And he's still meeting with us. We see in Revelation that Christ is in the midst of his local churches. He walks amongst them. The believers, Moses and Aaron say, let us go three, a three days journey into the wilderness. What they're telling Pharaoh there is, we're not coming back. We're not coming back. And Pharaoh knows this. If they get three days away, they're not coming back. They're long since gone. What they're telling them is God wants to take them to the promised land that he had promised to Abraham for Abraham's descendants. And they are the descendants of Abraham. Right now in slavery in Egypt, God wants to fulfill those promises and take them to the promised land. Let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. The believer who knows God wants to obey, let us go, let us do what God wants us to do, and they want to celebrate him in worship. It is the believer who knows that God will punish disobedience to his word. If Pharaoh doesn't allow them, they say, otherwise he, God, will fall on us with pestilence or with the sword. This is pretty clever wording. They realize that even as believers in God's word, that if they don't obey, God will spank them, and he'll spank them hard. He will exact a penalty. Hebrews chapter 12 tells us all about that as well, the chastening rod of God on his disobedient children. Now, why do they mention it this way? It's not just that this is a realization if they willfully disobey. They, they, they couldn't obey if Pharaoh didn't let them. God is going to have to go through 10 plagues, including the death of the firstborn, for them to get out of Egypt. And then he's going to have to destroy the army of Pharaoh and Pharaoh himself in the Red Sea. What are they doing here? They're telling Pharaoh, you value our slave labor so much, but you're not going to have any slaves if we don't get to obey the Lord. If we willfully disobey him the way you are saying you're going to do, I don't know the Lord. I do not know him that I should obey his voice, Pharaoh said. They're telling him, you're not going to have any slave labor if we refuse to obey the voice of the Lord because he's going to judge us. And that's a warning to Pharaoh. If he's going to judge his own, then he will judge Pharaoh and Pharaoh's house as well. The New Testament says, it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will happen to the rest of the world who does not know God? 
God will chasten his own children. He'll spank them. Those who do not know God, God in Christ will judge them for all eternity. The unbeliever cares only about the temporary things of this world. As Pharaoh says more, he speaks volumes about the state of his heart and what occupies his heart, what concerns him, what he is focused on with his life. But Pharaoh said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you draw the people away from their work? He's concerned about their work because they're making brick for all his building projects. Get back to your labors. This is all that the world cares about. Work and labors. Worship of God and Christ doesn't enter in to their thinking. Their focus is on work and labors and the profit that comes from it. Jesus Christ said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? There is no profit. And then he says, or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? There's nothing that you can give in exchange for your soul. There's nothing I can give. The unbeliever only cares about these temporary things that will all pass away. We can't take it with us. It's all left behind. Why do we labor for that which will only perish? God expects obedience and worship during trials in life. The world adds trials to the life of the believer. Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now many. You would have them cease from their labors. Here's his focus. So the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters, the Egyptian taskmasters, over the people and their foremen. We find out later on that these foremen are Jews. They're Hebrews. They're part of the people of God who are serving the world. He commanded them, saying, you are no longer to give the people straw to make bricks as previously. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. Besides the trial of laboring as slaves all day making the brick, now they have to gather the straw that they would mix in together to hold the brick together, to form the brick. The world only adds trials to the life of the believer. There is no blessing for the believer in Jesus Christ in the world. John makes that real clear in 1 John chapter 2. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. That's all the world can offer the believer. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The world adds trials. Oh, but, but Paul, isn't there something good that could come out of the world? How about money? We all need more money. Isn't money a good thing that the world provides? What did Jesus Christ teach in the parable of the sower? The seed thrown amongst the thorns, and they grow up, and they're choked out. By what? He explains what those are. The cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches. Riches are a trial 
in and of themselves. They can draw the heart of the believer away into materialism, into the lusts of the eyes, the desire to possess. The world will only add trials to your life. The closer a professing believer gets to the world, the more trials that will be added to their life. The trials from the world are intended to prevent the believer from worshiping God. The quota of bricks they are making previously, you shall impose on them. Why? They're not to reduce any of it. Why? Because the world perceives them as lazy. They cry, cry out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let the labor be heavier so they can't go and sacrifice to the God of the Hebrews. Let them work at it. Why? So that they will pay no attention to false words. The world does not believe God's word. The world doesn't care that you believe God's word. The world wants you to not believe in God's word. They call it false words. But the believer in Christ knows they're true. Every word of God is tested and is true. The servants of the God of this world, Satan, is spoken of as the God of this world in Paul's writings. The servants of the God of this world are the instruments used to bring trials into the life of the believer. The taskmasters of the Egyptians and their foremen, professing believers, other Hebrews, they spoke, thus says Pharaoh, I am not going to give you any straw. This is what they're telling to the, the, the Jews who are making brick. We're not going to give you any straw. You go and get straw for yourselves wherever you can find it. None of your labor will be reduced. So the people scattered through all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The world is not going to be the friend of the believer. The nicest smile you encounter. I'm not saying every person is a totally evil person. But they're not going to have your interests in mind as a believer in Christ. When you make friends of the world. James makes it very clear that he who is the friend of the world is the enemy of God. Why? Because the world is the enemy of God. They're not going to try to help you prosper spiritually. They'll want to sway you away from the path of righteousness. Your friendship with the world, with someone who lives in the world, an unsafe person, needs to be grounded on one thing and one thing only. The gospel of Jesus Christ and sharing that gospel so that if God would give them grace, they would believe. The world will only add harsher trials to the life of the believer. Taskmasters press them, saying, complete your work quota just as when you had straw. Moreover, the foremen of the sons of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not completed your required amount? in making brick as previously. When they could not make as much brick as they were supposed to, as much brick as they could before when they were provided straw, 
because part of their workday, they had to gather that, that straw, that stubble, to mix in with the clay to make bricks. The foremen were beaten. The world will only had, add harsher trials to the believer's life. They'll never make it easier. They're not your friend. The world is never the friend of the believer in Christ. I, I knew a Christian brother, a good Christian brother. I met him just after he got saved. He'd been an alcoholic. He, he had been an, an IV drug user, heroin. He stopped immediately when he heard the gospel. Through a chain of events, financial problems, marital problems, problems with his business, 25 years later, though he was de a deacon in the church, though he led our midweek prayer meeting, he started drinking again. Tiny bit at first. I needed to ask him to step down from those duties. And I would meet with him every week, take him out to dinner, take him to a meeting, and sit there with him. This is something he told me. He said, when you're drinking, you tell yourself the bottle is your friend. And he said, the bottle was never my friend. By extension, the world is never our friend. Whatever the world has to offer the believer in Christ is not our friend. It's not a blessing. It's like a fish hook with a juicy worm on it to get us to bite. But that hook is underneath. Complaining to the world about trials is the wrong thing to do. The foreman of the sons of Israel cried out to Pharaoh. Why do you deal this way with your servants? No straw is given to your servants. Yet you keep saying to us, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten. It is the fault of your own people. In other words, it's Pharaoh's fault. You think the world wants to hear that from the Christian? This is your fault. This is your mess. Whatever that mess happens to be, it doesn't want to hear that. It, complaining to the world about trials is the wrong thing to do. Paul writes to the Philippians, do all things without grumbling or complaining. Why? That you may prove yourself to be children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation shining as lights in the world. That's why we don't complain. That's why we don't grumble. It's not that it's not going to produce the effect that we want. It won't. The world doesn't want to hear our complaints. But so that we can shine, so we can be different than the world. The world loves to complain. The Christian who doesn't grumble, who doesn't complain, shines brightly to this world. They're a fine example to the Christian and the non-Christian, to the believer and the unbeliever, to the saint and to the sinner. They are a glowing and shining light of what Jesus Christ can do in the life of a person who obeys and worships him. Trials come because the world does not understand the believer's desire to obey and worship God. The world doesn't understand the Christian. They don't understand what makes the Christian tick. 
Pharaoh said, you are lazy, very lazy. That's what he thought about them. He just didn't understand that they wanted deeply in their hearts to obey God's word to them. He didn't understand that they loved the Lord their God so much with their whole heart that they wanted to worship him. They weren't going to a resort. They were going to the wilderness to worship God. It wasn't a great resort with hot, hot springs or a jacuzzi or being served a, a, a lemonade underneath an umbrella on the beach with a nice breeze. This was not going to be a great place to worship God, but they were going to worship him wherever he wanted them to worship. And they were misjudged by Pharaoh. You are lazy, very lazy. The world simply doesn't understand him. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. But the spiritual man appraises, evaluates, discerns all things, but he himself is evaluated by no one. The world doesn't understand what makes the spiritual man and woman of God tick. They can't figure it out. How can they be like this? Pharaoh is a prime example. He misjudges the people of God. God expects obedience and worship in the face of perceived injustice. Two more slides, and we'll see how this comes out. God's people are wrong to blame their leaders for their trials. This comes right out from the text of Scripture. I'm not saying this because I'm one of the elders here at this church. By all means, disagree with me. All you want, talk to me, blame me for something, that's fine, and we talk about it. But from the text here, God's people are wrong to blame their leaders for their trials. Why? Because God is sovereign over every trial in life. He's the one who allows these trials into our lives. The foremen of the people, they left Pharaoh's presence. They met with Moses and Aaron as they were waiting for them. And they said to them, may the Lord judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight. How did they make him odious? They spoke the word of God to Pharaoh. Let the people go three days into the wilderness that we may worship him, celebrate and worship, hold a feast to him. They said to him, May the Lord judge you. You have made us odious by speaking God's word to them in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in his hand to kill us. Clearly, that's wrong. Moses and Aaron only did what God had instructed in his word. They only told Pharaoh what God told them to tell Pharaoh, and yet they're being blamed for it. It's wrong to do that. God is sovereign over even the leaders in the church. He's sovereign over all of us. God's people are wrong to blame their leaders for their trials. God's leaders are wrong to blame God for their trials. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have you brought harm to this people? Nothing's changed. We've read this in Genesis 3. God says to Adam, have you eaten of the fruit of the tree that I told you you can't eat from? What does Adam do? 
It's your fault, God. The woman you gave me, she gave to me, and I ate. Goes to the woman, and she says, the serpent tricked me. A little better excuse than Adam's, but nonetheless, man doesn't change, even to this day. All of us, and especially here from this passage, leaders should never blame God for the trials that enter their life and the life of the people of God that they lead. Why have you brought harm? They're accusing God of causing harm. Why did you ever send me? This is what they ask. If this is the way it was going to be, if I had known this, maybe I wouldn't have come. Why did you send me here? I thought this was going to be a mighty deliverance. Instead, it's getting worse. God's ways are not our ways, Isaiah says. His thoughts are not our thoughts. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways than our ways, his thoughts than our thoughts. The prophet Isaiah writes, God has a plan that perhaps in large measure you and I cannot understand at this time. But he understands it. How much do we trust our heavenly father and his plan? for our lives, and for the life of our church. Moses goes on in verse 23, I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name. I gave you all the credit, God. And he has done harm. How could you allow this unbeliever to do this to the people of God, to us? And then he accuses him, you have not delivered your people at all. See, again, it's Moses' time. All those years earlier, 40 years earlier, he sought to deliver them with his fist, and he murdered a man. Now, again, Moses wants God to deliver the way Moses wants God to deliver. Right here, right now, just let me speak a word, and Pharaoh keels over and says, okay, leave. That's Moses' idea, but God had a different plan a plan that would involve the ten plagues and the parting of the Red Sea, a plan that would bring him so much glory and show that the God of Israel is mightier than any man-made God. God's plan would take a little longer, but it would bring him so much more glory than Pharaoh just saying, okay, go. I don't need you. I don't want you. Go and leave. He had a plan that would allow the women of Israel to plunder the Egyptian households of their gold, of their fine clothes. God's plan is so much greater than anything you and I can plan. I might have a plan for how I might like something to go. E even this message... I thought about it. I prayed about it. I, I tried to think of how to say things. But the final result, the Holy Spirit will do in the life of everyone who hears these words. It's not going to be my words that change anyone. It's not the words of any preacher that changes anyone, even the most eloquent preacher. It is the Holy Spirit enlightening the mind, touching the heart, 
shattering the iron will that refuses to obey God. It is the Holy Spirit who convicts of sin and righteousness and judgment. It is the Holy Spirit through God's word that will bring about change. It's always wrong for anyone to blame God, but especially God's leaders ought to know better. They need to be an example. If they don't trust God, how can those that are supposed to follow those leaders? Notice I say follow. Because the New Testament model of leadership is shepherding. The sheep follow the shepherd. It's not cattle that need to be driven and prodded. God's leaders are always wrong to blame God for their trials. They should know better. So today, let me ask you this. Will you begin to prayerfully purpose to obey God no matter what the personal cost? No matter what it costs you or I, will we obey God? Will we make that a matter of prayer? And today, will we prayerfully purpose to worship God even in difficult times? By God's grace, may it be that none of us here today ever do what we've known others to do. In a time of trial, walk away from God and Christ. Leave the fellowship of Christian believers. Stop opening the word of God. Stop kneeling down and worshiping God in prayer and thanking him and praising him and beseeching him to meet our needs. May we worship him even through difficult times. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you so much for the power of your word. How we thank you so much that you have given us instruction. How we thank you so much that you have given us your Holy Spirit so that we would have the inner desire and power to obey. Oh, dear God, we we acknowledge, we confess to you that sometimes, especially when it's difficult, we don't obey, much less worship you with a heart full of rejoicing and gratitude for all that you have done. Oh, dear God, would you be pleased that beginning this day that you would change us? that you would cause us to desire to obey you with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, all our strength. Would you help us to worship you even in the most difficult times, to praise you even in the midst of trials, to thank you for all that you are doing in our life. If you would be pleased to do that, we give you all the honor and glory. We ask all this for your name's sake. Amen.